This is KMUW, Wichita Public Radio. Engage ICT Democracy on Tap is a community engagement event series of KMUW Wichita. The following event took place on December 12th at Roxy's Downtown in Wichita, Kansas. Okay, you guys, welcome to Engage ICT Democracy on Tap. We'll go ahead and get started tonight. I'm Sarah Jane Crespo. I'm very glad to see all of you here with us uh, in this holiday season. Roxy's is very beautiful tonight, isn't it? Uh, I would like first to thank our sponsors, especially Roxy's for the venue and the appetizers. Let's have a round of applause. As well as the Wichita Public Library, which supplies us with further resources for all of our topics at Engage ICT. And uh, we always put all of the previous event topic uh, resources um, at our info table here. So if you missed an event or you want to check out information on the economy or education or whatever, whatever it is you might be interested in, come and check those out. Those are really good resources. And the library uh, has been very helpful to us in providing those. So let's have a, a round of applause for the Wichita Public Library. And lastly, a big thanks goes to VolunteerKansas.org for sponsoring Engage ICT during 2017. Uh, we, we really have valued their sponsorship, and um, this is a perfect event to talk about VolunteerKansas.org uh, as well, because we're talking about uh, volunteerism. So let's have a round of applause for VolunteerKansas.org for sponsoring. Okay, so uh, this is a little bit of a different Engage ICT event tonight. As always, though, you will find Q&A slips, question slips on your tables with pens. Um, if you don't see them there, raise your hand and Alexis will bring you, um, Alexis? Alexis will bring you uh, a slip or a pen or whatever you need. Um, and so you can fill out the uh, question or in this case tonight, since we're talking about ways to make a difference, if there is an organization that you know of that you'd like to share, um, you can write down what that is and, and what it's all about, and, uh, and I'll share those with the group as well. So, um, so we kind of have a conversation about volunteerism and hopefully ways that we can all help make a difference in our community. Um, so, with that said, we'll go ahead and dive in here. And I will say also, this, this poor sad chair is empty. Well, it's empty for a really good reason. One of our new reporters, Stephen Basaha, will be joining us later, but right now he's actually out reporting on a nonprofit here in the community. And so when he arrives, he'll be able to tell us just what he found out. So it'll be will <laughs> be breaking <laughs> about volunteerism and uh, and people who are like making a difference in Wichita. So let's go ahead and dive in here, and uh, I'd like first for our panel to introduce themselves. Um, we, because we wanted to share about the community and, and ways that people in the community are, are making a difference, we realized that we, in our own house, have a lot of really good resources uh, to talk about this subject. So we have KMW reporters with us tonight. Um, and so we'll kind of go down down the road here, and each of you, if you want to take a few minutes and talk about who you are, how you came to reporting in general, and how you came to KMUW, and uh, and so we can kind of all get to know you. So let's start with Carla Eccles. 
Good evening. So glad to be with you tonight as we talk about volunteerism, such an important subject. Uh, I came to work in public radio many years ago. I've been at KMW now 21 years, and I also worked at a public uh, radio station in Ohio, WISO. Uh, I was morning edition host way back in the day, so don't have to get up as early. <laughs> but, excuse me. Uh, started there and uh, eventually came home, and I have really loved working at KMW, telling so many stories. It's just been wonderful. Uh, I think I'll just stop right there. <laughs> I was expecting a lot longer. <laughs> you can take a lot longer if you like, that. That's fine. <laughs> no, much less experience. Um, I'm Nadia Foe. I've been at KMW for two and a half years now. Um, which is the longest I've been at the place for quite a while. But I interned at NPR a few years ago and then worked for the newspaper in North Dakota, of all places, and wanted to get back into public radio. Luckily, this opportunity opened up. I started doing digital, um, was finally allowed to put my voice on air, and I've been doing a little bit of both. Hi, I'm Deborah. Hello, Hello. Hi, I'm Deborah Shaw. I'm a reporter here. Um, my journalism career started television and radio. I worked for a public radio and TV station in Ohio uh, for several years and then went on to a commercial television uh, station and worked in various stations around the Midwest. So this is my eighth newsroom that I've been in. I've been with KMW going on my fourth year here. Um, and this is my third academic institution that I worked for. So I have a little bit of experience on all sides, teaching, television news, and radio news. And I'm happy to be doing the stories that are featured here on KMEW because they're challenging and we're able to spend so much time on topics that are important. And you don't get that in the commercial stations most of the time, so that's it. Okay, give it a second, give my mic up. Um, I'm Brian Grimmett, I've been here at KMEW about a month. I'm a brand new reporter here. Uh, previously, I worked at a public radio station in Salt Lake City, Utah. I worked there for five years covering state politics. Uh, so I was up in the state capitol there covering our, the Utah congressional delegation, uh, which was a blast. But now I'm here to cover energy and environment issues throughout the whole state, working with KMW and with the Kansas News Service uh, to kind of cover those issues. All of it. I'm really excited about it because there are so many stories to cover that fall into that whole energy <laughs> environment umbrella, whether that's water or trash or wind energy. It's it's kind of a whole grab bag of things, which I like because new things are fun. Thank you guys. Let's have a round of applause for our panel tonight. These are reporters. They're like, uh, I'm the ones who just ask, ask, ask the questions. questions. <laughs> <laughs> it's going to be funny. Okay, so let's uh, start out. So now all of you kind of report on a variety of things, and of course now, Brian, you'll be focusing in a lot, but, but volunteerism and, and nonprofits sort of seep into all, all different areas. Um, and so I want to start, you all may have noticed our, our fabulous projector uh, visual there. It's maybe not the highest tech thing you've ever seen. It's not the prettiest thing in the world, but... Um, we will be able to play some of those uh, stories that our reporters have covered. And I'd like to start with um, one that Deborah Shar did on uh, something called Project Access. 
Um, and, and so we'll kind of kick it off that way and let you all hear uh, an example of, uh, of that volunteerism and then we can talk about it. So here we go. Dr. Deborah Messamore is doing a final recheck on her patient, Stephanie. It's been about two months since Dr. Messamore performed a much-needed hysterectomy on Stephanie, ending five years of pain and suffering. I had uh, a constant daily pain every single day. Uh, I've been from one doctor to another doctor to another doctor to another doctor, and going to day to day is just prescribing this. You know, let's fix the problem with pain pills. We have to relax Never any answers. Late last year, a doctor at a community clinic referred Stephanie to a program called Project Access, which then in turn sent her to Dr. Deborah Messamore. Project Access patients come in not expecting anything, just wanting a little bit of help, and they are just a great goal. And, and they understand that we're not getting paid to take care of them, and the hospital's not getting paid to take care of them, but we're doing it for free for them. Dr. Messamore is one of more than 600 family doctors and specialists in Central County who donate their services to help people who need care but don't have insurance. Most of the time when we do the surgery, it eliminates whatever problem they've been having for a number of years and gets them back to where they can actually get a job and work all the time and, and release their pain and suffering. Project Access began in 1999 as a unique collaboration of doctors, dentists, hospitals, and pharmacies willing to address the health needs of the uninsured. The program coordinates this donated medical care and also provides prescription medicines and medical supplies. Commissioners, my name is Carrie Nelson, and I'm the Executive Director of Central Place Healthcare Partnership, where we're a nonprofit affiliated medical society of Central County Legal Administrative Project Access. Ann Nelson has been director of Project Access since day one. She says the program is successful because it provides options for people to see specialists when primary care is not enough. The safety net clinics have grown in this community, and that's wonderful. They're providing a lot more primary care to a lot more people in Central County. But what happens when those patients need something that's beyond the scope of those clinics to provide? That's when we step in. Over the years, Project Access has leveraged about $170 million worth of donated medical care to help more than 12,000 people in Central County. Lab work and diagnostic testing, such as MRIs, are also donated as needed. The annual budget of $800,000 only covers the program's complex administration and some prescription medicines. Funding comes from the United Way of the Plains, the City of Wichita, and Sedgwick County. All three provided the initial support needed to create Project Access. Director Nelson says the funding stream has been consistent, but when both the city and county made cuts in recent years, it has been tough. If you think of our funding base as a stool, two legs of, those, uh, of that funding stool have been cut, and we're concerned at some point that that stool is just going to tip over. The city reduced its funding by $50,000 last year to $175,000. Knowing that the cut was coming, Nelson applied for and later received a grant from the Kansas Health Foundation to make up for that loss. But then came the blow from the county, Commissioner Jim Howell. You know, the reality is that the economy's tough, and we have to constantly review and evaluate what we're doing here. 
At the January 21st meeting, Commissioners Howell, Richard Ramsaw, and Carl Peterson voted to cut the funding to Project Access to $175,000 to equal the city's funding level. This, even though the commissioners had approved $209,000 back in August when they finalized the county budget before Powell's election changed the majority on the commission. Powell says he voted in favor of the $34,000 reduction because he questioned whether project access was considered an essential government service. There was some discussion of potentially maybe it should go to zero. And so, you know, you look at the, is the glass full? Uh, no, not all the way full. But it's mostly full. You know, $175,000 that the county approved that day was in many regards a great success for those that support this program. Commissioners Tim Norton and Dave Unruh voted against the cut and were in favor of maintaining the previously budgeted $209,000, the same level of funding the county provided the past two years. Commissioner Unruh caused the cut short-sighted. Sandy County has been a good partner in Project Access for all these years, and to, uh, to try to split hairs on the funding that was approved in our budget does not seem to me to be the right course of action. Project Access Director Ann Nelson is now reworking the current budget, and she says the outcome will be disappointing. We will have less prescription support available for patients this year, and I'm very concerned about that. Uh, the other option was to cut a staff position, and we can't do that. If we cut one direct service staff position, we serve 350 less patients this year, and that's not acceptable. Dr. Donna Sweet has been a doctor and professor of internal medicine in Wichita for 33 years. She's currently serving on the board for Central Plains. She says she's worried about the funding cuts coming to Project Access. It seems paradoxical that we as physicians in the healthcare system have to work so hard to be able to give away our time and services. And all we're asking is some infrastructure money to help administer the program. Because to be done well, you have to keep track of patients, you have to enroll them, and you have to make sure that there's not other ways that you can get the health insurance. Improving access to health services in the county is one of the five health priorities identified back in 2010. The county health department created a community health improvement plan in 2013 that, among other things, specifically calls for increasing the number of patients served by project access. The plan's deadline for implementing its strategic measures is the end of this year. For KMUW News, I'm Deborah Shaw. Thank you. Haven't you all heard of Project Access? A few people. I thought that was a really interesting story, and I hadn't heard about it before before your story. Um, do you want to tell us a little bit about the how you found out about it and about the process? So I cover the county commission quite a bit uh, for us. And that particular year, this was a couple of years ago, the county had cut its funding. And that was a big deal um, because the city had reduced the budget and then the county followed suit. And so a lot of people in the medical community were really, really concerned about where people were going to get this kind of medical help. Um, these are people who can't afford insurance and are working, but they don't qualify for um, Medicaid and they don't qualify for, for a lot of the government provided services. So they're out there on their own and they have to pay for their health care on their own. And so this project access gives them all of the kind of care that they could, could use for free because the physicians donate the time, the pharmacies donate prescription medicine, hospitals donate the time to treat people. 
And so it works um, as a whole to make somebody get better with whatever ailment they have. And it keeps them from getting into a worse situation. Uh, some of these conditions are easily you know, solved and prevented, uh, preventing further complications in their health. And so anyway, so when the budget talk came up and all of these people were concerned, we thought that it was important to let the community know what was happening um, about Project Access, what it is, and then also what the county and the city, um, what their rationale was for reducing the funding and what the outcome would be if that happened. After the story aired, and I think in the next year, the county came back and found the $25,000 to add to the budget um, and re, you know, reinstated the funding that they had cut. And so I think at this point, they are still funding them at the same level. They haven't reduced it any further, but over the last you know, few years prior to all of this, they had reduced it quite a bit. And so it's still in the minds every time the budget talks come up between the city council and the county commission, you know, they have to approve the, their annual budgets every year. And every time it comes up, there's always that fear that they're going to cut it again. And uh, so far, it survived, I guess, to this point, and it's still very successful in their mission of, of treating people here in the county. Thank you. Um, and I found another story that you did also on sort of donated medical care, the JDOC story. Do you want to just kind of describe that a little bit and, and how, how they differ? Of course, that's an area medical care is such a huge area, and there are lots of, uh, of uh, nonprofits surrounding that. Um, but how do those two compare? So the JDOC program is um, it, it, it's a program that provides um, a win-win situation. Uh, the JDOCs are students who are studying at the University of Kansas School of Medicine, Wichita. They are medical students looking to become primary doctors. And they volunteer their time at the Guadalupe Clinic in South Wichita. And they work an entire day, sometimes an entire weekend, uh, providing care to people there. Uh, Guadalupe Clinic serves, it's, it's a donation-based clinic, health clinic. So there is no fee to get served there if you have a health problem. Uh, they ask for a $5 donation, um, and if people can't pay it, they still treat you. So about once a month, the JDOCs will go in there, and these medical students provide all of the care for that day. So there is a, you know, an attending physician that oversees the care, but the, the medical students do all of the um, you know, exams, they do the, their diagnosis, uh, they do any kind of testing under the direction of the doctor who's on call or you know, who's staffing it that weekend. So the medical students are getting training, treating real patients with real health problems and concerns. And the people are being treated under the care of a doctor, but also the medical students with the latest care available and um, solving their health issues. And these are people who probably don't have any other place to go when they're sick. Um, there was a woman there the day I was there that had, I think she had diabetes and she had some health complications as a result of that. And so uh, the doctors were you know, helping her work through that and providing some medicines and some, um, you know, health tools to help her manage her diabetes and, and her illness that she had at that time. Uh, so I guess it's different uh, because it's medical students who are the volunteers, uh, but it is still providing care for people in our community who have nowhere else to go to get that care. So it's the same that way, but different because the volunteers are the students who are also getting something out of it and helping their experience 
and helping them get a start on their careers uh, here in Kansas or where, wherever they end up. Yeah, another, another really good program. Um, and then there was some news just the other day. Nadia, if you want to talk a little bit about the Mayflower Clinic um, and, and kind of how that fits in. It's another safety net clinic similar to Project Access, um, like Guadalupe Clinic, Hunter Health, Grace Med, and just like Deborah was saying, it treats people who are kind of stuck in a, a weird spot where they can't afford private insurance, don't qualify for Medicaid for whatever reason, and just need very basic health care. And um, they don't turn anyone away. They they do as much as they can with a lot of donated resources from the community and from doctors in Wichita. And they recently moved to a slightly larger space. Um, they were down on William and moved up to first in Topeka. Um, so I got to meet them and see their new space the other day, and it'll give them room to grow. They'll be able to build apartments on that second floor there that they eventually rent out and become self-sustaining. So part of that revenue will actually go to the clinic, so they don't have to spend as much time doing fundraising and, and always worrying about if the grant is going to come through or not, so that's going to take a load off and be able to treat more patients. So that was, that was great to meet them. That's actually the first time I'd ever heard of them was with their room. But there are quite a few, not quite a few, but there are a few safety net clinics in Wichita that help a lot of people. And most of them are staffed by volunteers. So like at Guadalupe Clinic, the J-Docs do it their weekends, but there are volunteers who are student nurses, there are medical assistants who work the other times that the J-Docs are not there. And they are run by volunteers. Um, so, you know, there is an opportunity for people who have a health background or for people who just even take records and you know, whatever else, to be able to serve in these facilities as well. That's awesome. Actually, you anticipated the question that I was about to ask, which was how we could, how, how someone could get involved. Um, so, someone with a medical background, or, or you think someone just could kind of... Yeah, I think Guadalupe Clinic, um, I think on their website, they probably have a whole page about how to volunteer, and they do have needs, um, you know, for other things as well. Um, but the J-Docs, uh, the one thing that struck me about their... The students volunteering is that they're really they were really passionate about what they were doing um, these are students who had been up on call all night at Wesley or via Christie on their you know their residency shifts where they're working all night and then they came in on a Saturday morning and worked all day in the clinic and they were busy there was a waiting room full of people and they were just you know one after the next getting them into the to the examining rooms and getting them on their way with some kind of help, hopefully, for whatever the people had that day. Um, so I, I was really struck by their passion and uh, their commitment, and, and that's why I say it was a win-win, because people are being helped, the students are learning and getting experience, and you know it makes, makes it a stronger uh, outcome for our community. I remember from that story, too, uh, uh, one, of the, one of the medical students saying that she feels like she really makes a difference and can see every time she does it. Very very interesting. So that's a really uh, a good area. Um, let's move uh, to kind of switch gears here. Um, Carla, you uh, did a piece, was a year or two ago, in the recent history, um, about an organization called Real Men, Real Heroes. And we'll play a clip from that, and then um, you can tell us kind of how you, um, how you found them and, and uh, more, more of the story. So let's, uh, let's hear. So where are we now? Okay, so right now we're in the cafeteria for the Tuscaloosa Learning Academy. 
and the kids are all going through a STEM exercise, and with some chemistry equations and things to that effect tonight. So they're going to do an exercise dealing with straw arms and, and really engaging the kids to participate. And I mean, it looks like about, what, 50 or so, or? About 50, 55, 60, and then not counting the kids. So high school kids are back in the other room. I've been working with some of their mentors as well. And why boys? Why mentor boys? Well, Carl, as you know, particularly the African-American community, less of our kids graduate from high school. We're so excited to say to you that this is our ninth year. We're going to go into our 10th year. But within our ninth year, 100% of our kids graduate from high school, and 100% of them go on to college. And that's because we get involved, we let them know that we care, we expose them to different cultural events, we have investors, they know what we're doing, they understand the value of it. And you know, my day job as an economic developer, it's about raising up leaders. We export a good portion of our human capital. These kids get education, but then they leave here and go to another city. After we train them and raise them up, we want them to stay here continue to forge our community and help make our community very viable. Wow, so we see all the kids sitting at the table getting ready to work on it. What's his name? What's Hi. Oh really? So what's your name? My name is Joshua. Joshua and tell me your last name. Evie Duncan. What do you like about this program? I like about it like they teach us they teach us what to do in life and when we grow up to get a good job and career. Well, you think you're going to be a judge, and I understand what the says you're going to be a judge. Yes, when I was a baby, I used to play judge all the time. <laughs> <laughs> we are the right way, though. My name is Toby Chaney. Tell me, um, how long have you been with the program? Four years. I like how they, like, stay with you. They don't give up on you. And, like, when, when you're in trouble, they'll always be there for you. Like, they can come to your school and work with you. Your name, please. Buddy Shane. And, Buddy, you're one of the mentors? Yes, I am. Now, how long have you been part of the Real Men, Real Heroes? I'm a co-founder of the organization from the inception. And why do you do this? Well, I do it because many of our boys in the community don't have dads. And so, you know, we can't be a dad to every kid, but for those who are part of this organization, we do our best to show them the love of a community member, a father, a friend, and just try to help them understand the importance of having a mentor in their life. A young man with a striped shirt. I mean, he is a young man who's been in the organization for a couple of years. He's a 3.0 student, comes from a single parent home, and he is so bright and so full of uh, energy. And boys like him really make this uh, worth, worth the time. And what is his name? Myra. Hi, Myra. Can I speak to you for just a second? <laughs> My name is Myra Coleman, and I am in the fifth grade this year. This program is helping me out how to get good grades, how to keep on it. My mind ahead and stuff, how to make sure you stay in the present and not the past. Even if you have bad things going on in your life, you still gotta be present and not the past. What's the best part of this program for you? The best part is how you learn STEM, how you learn how you learn new things. Don't squeeze it, don't squeeze it. This right here, we have the egg. It's on the egg right here. We have the straws to cover all the protect the egg. And then this is the wing span. Okay, so what is this? When, when you drop, what do you do for the week? But it's not going to crack. Okay. We're going to have to see what happens. Tell me your name, please. Yes, my name is Roy Moy III. I'm just happy mentor here with Future Heroes. And so, one of the things that I've been blessed to bring to the program is STEM, science, technology, engineering, and math. And so, we talked about equations, um, kinematic equations before we do the activity um, in, in regards to velocity and time. So, trying to show them how to. 
uh, simplify those equations by taking the square root of you know the square terms and get what they need to solve for the speed, the velocity, and the time it takes for that A to drop. And then just try to uh, let them have fun by creating their own projects. Um, and hopefully, hopefully their eggs don't crack. So how long have you been part of the group? Um, this, is, this is like my second year full time, so three years in total, but this is my second year. You, you go through a year-long audition process, and once you go through that process, you're officially in. So, um, and they're just, they're, they're my everything. Like, I love these kids. They're, they're awesome. They always, you know, pick you up when you're having a rough day. You come from work, you really just got to let it go, because it's all about them. Okay. And then text me and be like, hey, you so around me. Okay, so now, what is the process for a mentor? How can you become one? There is a year apprenticeship. No one mentor can nominate another person. It takes two mentors. We do a thorough background check from the vetting process. One of the things we've noticed, Carl, in this program, a lot of these kids have had male role models maybe show up in their life and have made promises to them and let them down. So, so many of these kids have been let down so many times that they're skeptical of other male role models. So we tell guys that are interested in being part of our program that if you're not really serious about this, this may not be a good fit for you. Because when we give these kids our word we're going to do something, we stick with our word. And that means so much to them. And they come back each week with smiling faces. I mean, we've had some kids that are so aloof, distant, low self-esteem, and we see the lights in their eyes as far and change and turn into doing well in school, we give their progress reports. We monitor them. We're raising leaders. That's what we're doing. Our mission is no role models, empowering you to help build strong communities one year to the top. Thank you so much. You're welcome. Thank you. Carla, was there anything uh, that, that uh, you didn't have time for in the piece, stories that you wanted to tell, or, or more to that story that you'd like to share? Absolutely. Uh, first of all, I was so impressed with all the young people to walk into a room and see all these young boys. It was amazing. And all these men, you know, taking time to mentor them. What, one of the stories that I wasn't able to tell was that um, uh, a lot of these mothers are so appreciative of these men that are mentoring their children. And there was one child that was having trouble in fifth grade and he was going into sixth grade. Got to sixth grade, he was having some trouble. So Shardell, the brother B, the gentleman with the deep voice, Shardell Breathitt, he uh, went to the parent-teacher conference with the mother. And uh, they made a plan with the teacher as far as what the student would do. Well, the student had turned around so great. I mean, it was an amazing turnaround. And the principal called the mother. She was so excited and just let her know how her child is doing so well. And so those are the kinds of stories. You know, you just want to add from the school aspect how, you know, that really is making an impact. Um, and just, you know, the whole idea that uh, when you talk about volunteerism, these men are so, so committed. And they have to be when you're talking about young people. And as he mentioned, you know, you have to, to go through a year process. It's not like you can immediately volunteer. And uh, the kids notice the difference. They really do uh, notice the difference. So um, pretty much that's, that's kind of Steve. Glad to see you, Steven. The Sahas. Take a moment to welcome Steven to the table. Yay, glad to be here. So, absolutely. 
Now, are there other similar organizations to this that you'd like to mention uh, and ways for people to get involved if they are passionate about this subject? I'm so glad you asked. Uh, one of the things they're doing, they're expanding, which is awesome. They're doing more in the schools and also they're going to Evergreen, if you know where Evergreen Park is, to some uh, in the Hispanic community. They're working with those students. The other question I ask is, is this exclusively for African-American boys? And they said, absolutely not. They said that they have some mentors that are not African-American, even some students that are uh, not African-American that are part of the program. Um, so they are uh, continuing to uh, look for volunteers, but again, you know, they have to be truly vetted. And um, they cannot say how many people are just contacting them on a weekly basis saying, can my student, can my child be a part of this? Um, so there's volunteerism. And then I know that they feed the children. There's other things that they do. So it would be a matter of contacting the office to see how you might best uh, help the students. They also travel. I know that they've had the Kansas City Chiefs uh, work with the kids uh, to some degree. And they've done other things. But their primary focus is uh, on uh, academics. So, Thank you very much. Uh, now, since Stephen just joined us, um, I, I just had everyone kind of share a little bit about themselves how they came to become a reporter and how they came to KMUW, just to give us a little context. And then if you want to share uh, a little bit about um, where you've been this last hour. <laughs> it's napping, really. Uh, all right, so how I got here in Wichita, Kansas, because uh, I'm originally from New Jersey, uh, uh, what was I doing? So I, I knew I wanted to do communications. I wanted to be a reporter pretty early on when I was in uh, my undergraduate school in, uh, in New Jersey. And I knew I wanted to do something with radio. So I ended up getting a job as a producer for this random like, unknown guy named Glenn Beck. Uh, so I was producing for him for a little while, just on the content uh, side. Uh, and no matter what your politics are, listening to five hours of opinion every day can get a little tiring. So that caused a switch of careers, and eventually I, uh, I shifted over to Columbia University's uh, grad school journalism, uh, concentrated in data journalism there. That eventually, that like, data journalism was like the shiny buzzword that like I dangled in like, my resume. That got me to NPR. So I was a Kroc fellow with uh, them. So I spent uh, a year at NPR headquarters uh, reporting uh, for Morning Edition, all things considered. And then that wrapped up, and uh, my editor uh, at NPR, a great guy named Luis Clemens on the national desk, he had recommended Wichita, Kansas as a great city to look into at a great station. Uh, this is my way of asking for a raise already. Uh, and lo and behold, I did the interview, and I ended up looking here, and that's what brought me to this particular moment. Thank you. Welcome to the panel tonight. Thank you. Um, now, do you want to share a little bit about the organization that you were just learning about? Yeah, uh, I uh, just come from an event uh, put together by a group called Project Teacher. Uh, so the way they work is uh, teachers uh, usually are given a budget when it comes to their classroom. Uh, maybe a couple hundred dollars a year for supplies, uh, pencils, erasers, all the great posters you see around their walls. Uh, a little kitten and it says hang in there. Yeah, <laughs> that is exactly it. Uh, yeah, someone has to pay for that. that someone has to pay that cat. Uh, 
And the thing is that money runs out really fast. And it's not just spent on, on, on kittens and, uh, and cute puppies. It's also spent on sometimes uh, snacks for children, especially in these uh, lower income uh, neighborhoods and schools where sometimes uh, children can come in without really a meal. And oftentimes teachers tend to be generous and kind people, so their budget has run out and they are spending out of pocket uh, on supplies. Again, not just erasers and pencils, but uh, decorations for their classrooms and just being generous to their students. So. Project Teacher is a group that's been around for a couple of years. Uh, they've given away, at this point, a little over $3 million to uh, teachers in the, in the area. So teachers will come in, uh, set up as a retail store, but with no cash register, and they're given a list uh, of uh, like the max they can uh, grab of everything, but it's pretty generous. Uh, so teachers will go through the store, they will grab highlighters, they will grab, uh, again, posters, uh, and what was interesting was watching uh, two different types of teachers that went through. One was a student who, or not a student, a, uh, a first year teacher. She, she, she has a new classroom, it's completely bare. She's actually starting in January, she has not started yet. And her, her thing was she's like, okay, I completely blank, sorry, I need to grab all the basic supplies. And then we had another teacher who uh, had been teaching for six years, and her thing was she was going for all the creative supplies. So uh, she had mentioned previously she had grabbed uh, Spider-Man duct tape, and that had been a big hit in her classroom. <laughs> Teachers are amazingly creative people. They will take uh, whatever random supplies that you could think of, and they'll make an activity out of it. The thing is they just need supplies. You need at least a little something to spark that creativity to work with. Uh, the uh, Terry Johnson, who uh, founded Project Teacher, one thing he was talking about was someone that donated uh, eggs, literally hollowed out eggs. I don't know if they had found them or there's like eggs you find on, on the ground, like on some other bird, like backed out the yolk. And the teacher was the teacher took it. And they went away like almost immediately. A teacher saw those, like I want them, and uses the teacher students about uh, different species of birds around town, so yeah, I, it's, it was a really great showcase of that creativity that teachers bring to the field. I, I would not do that. Yeah. Very interesting. So you'll be working on that feature and it will air uh, when it's done, or do you know when it will air? Uh, I'm not in the news department, so I, I don't uh, know how this works. Okay. <laughs> nope. Yeah, no promise. No promise. But <laughs> ideally sometime uh, next week that should be wrapped up in, uh, in a year later. Very good, so listen for that. Thank you for the little preview. Um, now let's uh, switch gears again, and uh, I want to play uh, a story from Maddie of Foe, um, and this is uh, also kind of an educational theme, English as a Second Language uh, volunteers, um, and let's let that roll, and then um, we can talk about that. You are listening to KMUW NPR for Wichita. The International Rescue Committee has been helping to resettle and rebuild the lives of refugees in Wichita since 2011. A team of volunteers helps them adjust to their new homes, find jobs, and learn English. KMUW's Nadia Foe visited an English as a Second Language class for adult refugees and has this sound portrait. 
uh, culture, anthropology, and religion, and I've always been fascinated about other people's uh, culture and beliefs. So, Anil was not, was not in class last week. I think I have an easier job than Pete and Lisa, because sometimes they're working with people who have no knowledge of our uh, alphabet. They've never, some people have never held the writing utensil um, before, so it can be a little bit more challenging. They're, they're learning the ABCs of which are three. Either present or same. Present or here, same. Okay, good job. Whatever the learning level is for the students, that's where you start and you go from there. They're having to learn a new language and it's they're adults and it takes a little longer than it would if they were five or six. And it's there's frustration on their part because they held a, a position in their country and they can't do the same work here yet until they master the English language or have a good grasp of it. So there's that frustration. They want to learn. Um, they're grateful for the opportunities and they come as frequently as they can. They want to be here, they want good jobs, they want to, they want the American dream, they want their family to, to uh, prosper. You are, he, she, it, it is, let's say it together, we are, you are, they are. For me, I don't think it's altruistic. <laughs> it's all about what I get from the experience. And then it's also what they did. But I get a lot of joy and I get pumped up and I feel great. I look forward to coming and then afterwards I, look, I feel great because someone connected and they understood what I was teaching and they, aha, and they got it. They were excellent. On most days I feel like I get more than I give. But hopefully they get as much or more. Otherwise I wouldn't be here anymore. You have. He, she, it, Thank you. Now, this story actually won first place, right, in the Kansas Association of Broadcasters. So. Yeah, one story with my voice not in it. So. <laughs> <laughs> That's just a clue. <laughs> Doesn't mean it. Um, do you want to tell us a little bit about how you found this story and and the process of kind of digging into it? I don't remember how I discovered the IRC. I'm sure it's just researching. I'm interested in refugee issues and immigration issues, and they came up. And IRC based in New York, and Wichita is their only other location. Um, it was interesting, just Wichita happened to have the right mix of low cost of living and, and good work for refugees being set up here. Maybe in the 90s? I make something up there. Um, and they were they were generous enough to set me up with this class because specifically I was looking for volunteers and they said we have these three who have a fantastic relationship. We'd love for you to observe them in the classroom. So they just let me kind of linger for a few hours one morning. And the students were incredibly generous as well, not not minding my presence and being kind of intrusive with the microphone and the camera. So I just got to hang out. So it was a very 
easy and fun story to put together. Not a whole lot of research went into it. Like it's just a sound portrait, but so interesting to learn and to see how the two different classes come together. Yeah, definitely. Um, do you did you learn how maybe other people can get involved? Did they talk about how to how to get involved? If you want to teach or if you want to do something else, but help this organization. If you just Google IRC in Wichita, International Rescue Committee, they're always looking for volunteers, um, ESL teachers, people who can help coach refugees on some job skills, interview skills, um, general life skills in the U.S., just acclimating to this whole new country, um, always need assistance. So they, I'm sure they've got lots of opportunities if anyone is interested in helping. There's also Episcopal Migration Ministries that does very similar work. Um, Want to get involved there? Um, just wanted to note, Wichita is supposed to get a lot fewer refugees settled here in the coming year, I and mean, the U.S. as a whole is going to get a lot fewer. So, um, organizations like this might get less funding. Um, we'll just have fewer people coming in, and might be able to offer fewer resources. But still, the the need is there if you want to get involved. Thank you very much. Um, and Stephen, I forgot to ask you if you found out today how other people can get involved in Project Teacher. Do they need donations? Are there other ways that people can help with that? They do need uh, donations. Uh, they also need uh, people just hoping to stock the shelves, hoping to uh, really, it's, it's a lot of inventory that needs to be handled. And ultimately, that that's go, goes on uh, someone's shoulders. And the more help that they can get with that, the faster they can help get that out to uh, the teachers. I mean, they're only open currently, I believe, one day a week. They want to open up more, but part of that is just turnover of uh, inventory. They seem to get a, a lot of uh, donations. They just need help uh, and space uh, to actually manage it. Thank you. Um, now, for any of you, do you know of other organizations that uh, are out there uh, with a, an educational kind of mission um, and uh, that maybe people aren't aware of and, uh, and any needs that they have? I don't know if you just have others hanging out in your brain that you can tell us about. Anyone? Go ahead. You're looking at me. I'm looking at all of you, yes. <laughs> um, well... In the, in the short month I've been here, uh, I've been looking, I've been pulled and do these, these stories around this time of the year, so I've been trying to find an organization that I can uh, kind of look into it and find out about. And, and I kind of came across this one in a roundabout way. I was actually meeting a potential source for interview stories. He's a professor at Wichita State, and he does uh, things to do with the electrical grid. And so I, they do earn a stipend for for doing their volunteer work, but if you talk to them, they'll tell you they'll do it regardless of the money because they see the difference it makes uh, for the children who, are, who they are working with. Uh, they've seen them, their academic uh, achievements excel just in the short time that they work throughout that year. Are there, what kind of requirements do you, do you know to, to become There's a There's an age requirement, <laughs> and um, I think you have to commit to a certain number of hours for volunteering <coughs> in the program. Um, I don't recall the other things, but there are hard. There's a couple. I think it is it run through the cap. I think it's through the Catholic Charities um, program. It used to be funded by Sedgwick County, but they stopped their funding of the foster grandparent program two years ago. And I think it was the Catholic Charities that stepped up and provided the funding to keep the program going. Otherwise, the program would have collapsed. Um, 
so it is continuing today with much success. Thank you. Thank you. Um, I have a few questions from the audience that uh, I can ask you all, and, and as a reminder, if you want to ask a question of our panel, uh, definitely fill out a, a slip, but also if you have um, an organization that you'd like to, to, for me to share with everyone, um, you can write down a little bit about it, and, and I will do that too. Um, one audience member wants to know basically trends that you all may have observed. Um, do you see donor fatigue in the community? And also, are, are there too many nonprofits? Is there a saturation point? Have any of you uh, kind of witnessed or, or have any uh, information to share on those ideas? Um, it's not answering the question directly. Um, not to be all like a politician up here, but um, <laughs> I, I, I just have noticed that, that, it's, that it's interesting. I don't know if there's like a fatigue about it. I tend to look at it almost in a different way, that there are so many opportunities out there. It just seems like there are so many places you can help out. And so, uh, and there's, you know, they all kind of lack something, whether that's people or funding or space or, or, or whatever. And so, I don't know if people get, maybe, I mean, I don't know if people get tired of of all of these organizations that need their help, but I would I would say if, if that's the case, if you're feeling tired or feeling overwhelmed, try to, to, to look at it from the other perspective that there's something for you to do. Like there is all you can find an organization out there to serve at. And and to not I guess it's easy to get paralyzed when there are so many choices, but just do it. Like just find something that you can do. Not, not only <laughs> all the choices, but kind of wondering if what what you might be doing really does make a difference. And some of these stories, it seems you know, just so clear, the grandparents mentoring the kids or the doctors you know, volunteering their time, the difference they make is instant and very visible. Um, and I mean, is it something that, that we can all do? Are there opportunities really that we can all take on that do make a difference like that? Or do you have to have those special skills to, no, Nadia? <laughs> <laughs> like Deborah said, just time. Um, Even the, the least skilled among us can, can offer something. Can help. <laughs> Thank you. Well, um, I want to go to another of, uh, of our radio spots, uh, something uh, kind of different from what we've heard so far. Uh, this is another one from Deborah Shar um, uh, about a blessing box. Did any of you hear this one air? It's pretty good. Let's take a listen to that, and uh, and then we can talk about that. You're listening to KMUW NPR for Wichita, a service of Wichita State University. One family in Wichita is taking the idea of a community pantry to a very personal level. They've set up what's called a blessing box in their front yard and are inviting people to take what they need. KMUW's Deborah Shaw has their story. When you walk into Maggie Ballard's home on West 13th Street, it's hard not to miss the bags of food that cover her dining room table and sit in piles along the walls of the room. All of this was donated. The outpouring of our neighborhood and community has been really awesome. There are cans of vegetables and fruit, tuna fish, and instant soup cups. Cases of bottled water are stacked, and there's an assortment of pasta sauce and boxes of pasta. 
Ballard is sorting through the food and grabbing as many items as she can hold. Then she heads outside to deposit all the food inside a red box that stands at the front of her yard. The two-foot-by-two-foot two box is made out of wood and is mounted on a post about three feet off the ground. There's a door on the front, but no lock. And there's a written note that reads, Take a blessing when you need one, leave blessing when you can. This is Ballard's blessing box. I just always kind of had a little passion to help people, and um, we get a lot of foot traffic, you know, down here on 13th. I just thought it would be a fun little experiment to see if the blessing box has only been up for one month, and there's no question that people are using it. Ballard estimates they've gone through more than 200 items so far. Uh, my son is six years old, so it gives them a little chore to, you know, kind of watch it and see what comes and goes and who comes and goes, and maybe learn a little lesson from it. There are two shelves in the blessing box that Ballard and her son Paxton fill with non-perishable food and toiletries such as soap and feminine hygiene products. They check on the box and restock several times a day. Literally every time we pull into the driveway, Paxson pulls out to the boxes, take the inventory, see what's new or what's left or something that's been moved. I think it's really awesome. All of the items are free and with the blessing box available 24 seven, there's a sense of anonymity that comes with it that you won't find at a traditional community food pantry. Most of the interactions with this box on West 13th Street have come under the cover of darkness. Most of the um, traffic is in the middle of the night, I would say between midnight and maybe seven in the morning. I have specifically only seen one person actually using it. I've seen several people dropping things off. And that's the beauty of the blessing box. It's not just about the withdrawals. Donations are also coming in around the clock. Maggie Ballard says they make a point to leave some room on the shelves in case people passing by want to drop off items. Within the first week, we had a couple boxes that were left um, at the base of the blessing box. People have donated a little bit of money, so I do have a little bit of money set aside that I can continue to buy things to keep it stocked. I want to keep it up as long as it's needed, so I just hope that it continues to be a success. By most accounts, the first blessing box started in Oklahoma back in June. After a few social media posts, the idea has been quickly spreading across the U.S. That's how Ballard and a lot of other people got inspired. I actually saw a picture of it on Facebook. There was one at Table Rock that was quite a bit bigger than mine, but it gave me the idea of what I wanted to do, and I actually just screenshotted it, sent it to a friend of mine, and he just built it. There are now blessing boxes of all sizes in many states, including a few others in Kansas. Some have religious connections. For Ballard, it is about doing something small that could make a big difference to someone else. We did get a thank you note on Halloween. I'm not sure when they left it, but that was really cool. And my son's the one that found it, so he was just ecstatic and ran in and told me, Mom, somebody left us a note. And so we ran out there. And it was really awesome and made us feel good that it's appreciated by whoever else is using it. With winter on the way, this mother and son are now thinking about what they'll do during the cold months. Instead of cans, they might put out more dry food items like oatmeal or hot chocolate packets. Instead of body wash, they'll add soap bars. But what they won't do is take down the blessing box. It's just been really heartwarming knowing that we're helping people and that was like the whole goal. For KMUW News, 
Hi, Deborah Shaw. Can you give us an update on this story? Right, so this story aired a year ago, right? So um, in that year's time, this idea has really exploded for Maggie here in Wichita. Um, my, I did this story for us, and then about a month later, NPR was interested, and I did a separate version for NPR, and it aired nationally. Once it aired nationally, I received dozens of emails from people asking how to get a hold of Maggie, uh, how to build a blessing box, how to um, you know, start one in their communities. They, people wanted help of doing it. They thought it was a great idea, and so I referred them all back to her. And she got in touch with the people and helped, you know, those people start their own blessing boxes. Uh, here in Wichita, after that commotion, you know, because that was a lot of publicity she received because she was getting messages from all across the U.S. I think she even received some from England, too. Um, it, and the story I found posted on television websites, television stations did a story, uh, you know, radio stations, of course, aired versions of it and it was digital and they were I found our pictures the pictures I took and the videos that you know our digital editor Hugo put on our, on our website were duplicated all over the country um, after all the publicity and the attention started to wear down she continued um, building the blessing boxes and now I believe she is building them for people here who request them and I think she was up to a dozen the last time I checked and so if you see the boxes around town some of them have numbers if they have numbers, they were built by her and her son. Uh, her son kind of took on the project now, and they call it Paxton's Blessing Box, and he's, you know, the namesake for it, and they continue to build them to this day. And so um, it's still going, and her box is still up. I passed it the other day, and it's still in her yard, and um, that day there were just a few cans, so she needs some donations then. That's right, that was the end of the street. Yeah, is it still I there? Her. I know her, yeah. Yeah, that's a good way for anyone to get involved if they want to just bring. bring and I think some the, the thing with this one, it was something so simple that you know she just put some cans in there on her own, and then her friends heard about it. So then her friends started giving her cans, and then the school where her son went to school, some of those families started giving donations, and it kind of snowballed, you know. And it was something that you know we asked for food donations for a lot of different food drives throughout the community. But this is something she just did on her own in her yard because she wanted to do it. Uh, you know, it wasn't for any other reason. And now it's really taken off. And uh, there are a lot of other organizations that do boxes as well. I think in um, what is the park called? At Fairmont Park, there's two uh, blessing boxes. I think, or well, they have the libraries, the little free libraries. But there's also a food pantry uh, there as well. So they are around town. Uh, here and they've kind of exploded. So that was kind of kind of neat to see um, the impact of one story of one woman and how it's kind of gone around and come back to Wichita. Interesting. Um, it kind of reminds me of something that I was talking to you about, Stephen, about uh, uh, donating uh, in well, ways to impact uh, maybe that are that don't need to be painful. Maybe you can donate. Yeah. You want to talk about that a little bit? There have been studies into this idea that people need to suffer for their volunteering in their charity. I believe it's called the uh, like the martyr effect. Uh, and it's the idea that uh, there have been a lot of studies on how if you get people to suffer when they're doing a donation, they tend to give more money. This is what ice bucket challenges is 
based on this. Uh, I mean, a lot of good comes from these things, too. I mean, major breakthroughs came from that. I mean, it's also the main reason why people would do like a certain like type of run where they give money based on miles or people sponsor them and give money based on miles. And if that's what motivates you to give, and uh, I think that's great. But I think there's also some people that uh, feel like, okay, especially on the holidays, they're very busy. They're so, there's only so much they can do. Like, oh, I don't have time to run by some uh, cans or donate my time. There are ways that don't involve uh, freezing cold ice pouring down your head, or even sometimes you don't have an, an hour. And in those cases, uh, there's other things you can do. Uh, giving space uh, is a big thing. Uh, places like Project Future that need places to store a lot of the supplies that they have. Uh, literally, just cash is often something that a lot of these places uh, need just to be able to buy these supplies. Like what people are volunteering for, what they're actually uh, the material they're working with and giving it to people. That's to come from somewhere. Uh, and then also sometimes uh, it's just about being smart with your, your dollars. Like if you have cans that you're not using, great, donate them. Uh, if you're gonna go to a store and buy some cans, that's cool, donate them. Uh, better to take that money that you would buy those cans with and give it directly to a place like a food bank because they have uh, bulk buying power. So they can take that uh, $1 can, $1 you would spend on the can and stretch that out into like multiple times more to, 10, 15, 20 dollars. So that's something I tend to think about a lot when it comes to volunteering is if if there's an extra thing that will motivate you to do it, great. Uh, that's making you going out and doing a run and that also motivate you to go for a run, fantastic. But you don't have to go through that same level of pain to do a great Work. I mean, I, I imagine an ethics professor would say you're, you're still doing the same uh, matter of good in the world. Right. And you don't have to be in pain if you can actually be paid, right? There's a, a program that you were looking at, Brian? Uh, no. WSU? Oh, yeah. <laughs> I'll get to that, but I didn't want to add. I, I just didn't want to forget that one. Yeah, yeah we're going to add. I did want to add uh, something to, to what Stephen was saying, and then I'll get to that. Um, <laughs> that it is interesting that you say, like, it doesn't seem noble for some reason to just give cash to an organization, but many, many of them, that's what they need. That's what the best. I remember um, just this past year with uh, on the hurricanes and with Hurricane Harvey specifically down in Texas that um, a lot of the organizations, a lot of people wanted to give clothes or to give, I don't know, just like hygiene kids or something, all this stuff they wanted to give. And they didn't need that. I mean, even the Red Cross, they're like, we don't need that. We need cash because we can, we can, we know we can use that as a resource to get what people actually need rather than having a bunch of stuff that, while nice, they don't need. To add on to that, that can also sometimes be a hindrance in uh, recovery situations because uh, when you have all these supplies coming in and you have a lack of space, people don't even have a place to sleep, their space is going to be used up, uh, air traffic is being used up. Uh, so yeah. there, there are some situations where uh, things like thinking like, well, I'm going to donate my old clothes is going to help. It's like, well, I understand you want to clear your closet, but actually giving money could be much more helpful in a situation. And, and just a little caveat to that, there are bad charities, um, so be careful where you're giving your money. I don't want, I mean, the majority of, well, I don't want to say that. 
many, many charities are very great and they're, they're worthy of your, your transformations, but just the caveat on that is you do need to be careful there are bad charities. That would be the, the difference. Oh, that's okay. really tough. There are, there are websites, I don't know about through my head, there are websites that kind of list, um, you know, that, that do research into that. If you really Charity Navigator, one of them? Yeah, you can get, yeah, Charity Navigator's one of them. You can get really technical and you can pull up their, um, if they're a 501 3C or, or another one of the 501, you can pull up their Form 990, which kind of shows. Yeah, where the money is going, whether there's a lot of overhead costs, whether they're paying, um, whether the money that they use goes for services or whether the money goes just to paying their administrative costs. And that's not to say that a charity who pays administrators is a bad charity because it costs to do those things, but just you can kind of see what it is. I mean, even, uh, and there are some trusted charities out there, kind of the big ones, some of those are trusted, some of them are kind of iffy. I mean, NPR has looked into the Red Cross and said that maybe some of the stuff that they've done hasn't all been directly going to the emergency that you thought you were donating to. So, I, I don't know. Go to trusted sources like NPR to get some trusted stories there too. Another thing along with that, uh, uh, administrative uh, tasks. Again, that's not the, yes, I'm on the front lines of actually looking in the eye of the person that I am helping. But sometimes really just volunteering and helping to answer the phone is what they need. Uh, I want not necessarily the most, but those are tasks that definitely aren't the most glorious, but you are doing an important part to bring help to people. Thank you. Um, I, uh, we're starting to run shorter on time, so rather than playing the next clip, um, I wanted to share a piece from Carla about uh, Seniors and Companionship for Seniors uh, from the Kansas Humane Society. Would you tell us a little bit about that program and uh, what you've learned and maybe ways for people to get involved with that if they're interested? Certainly, Jack. Let me just put the picture up there. Uh -huh. yep. um, it's called Project Companionship. Now, uh, it's called Project Companionship, and it was so interesting to meet this woman that you'll see right here, Sue Kay, and uh, she has a complicated last name. She wouldn't allow me to say it on the air. <laughs> she said, I'm just Sue Kay, so I said, okay. But um, she is an amazing volunteer. She's still there at the Kansas Humane Society. And what she does, and other volunteers, is they go to various residents here in our community, uh, senior citizens' homes. There's an incredible waiting list, you all. I just found out that today they are just waiting. People are, are would love to have Sue Kay and her group come out and share these wonderful dogs with them. And um, what happens is they said that a number of people, um, some of the residents have family members that are away and in different places. And so to be able to snuggle up to a little puppy, you know, uh, it gives them great joy. And even some of the residents, they take photos and put them all around so that the residents can see themselves with the animals. But it's special training that you have to go through um, in order to be part of project, um, project companionship so that uh, you know how to handle the dogs and so forth as they go out. Um, it doesn't take long, but you do have to go through the training so you know what to do. And uh, even sometimes they would ask you to work at the Kansas Humane Society to understand uh, what they do there. Um, but you can talk to Sue Kay and she can give you more details if you are really interested. 
but it's just been phenomenal. I just love being out there with the residents and the staff and watching how people interacted with the dogs. It was just amazing. Uh, they really did enjoy them. And uh, the one thing I was wanting the dogs to do was bark. You don't know what I was doing. I was like, come on, come on. And the, the, all they would do is lick the microphone. I was like, oh, wait a minute, I'm just going to the so that people know that you're a dog. But uh, anyway, it was quite a great, great opportunity to go out um, and uh, again to observe this and the group that they're doing with these animals. I should mention too that the animals that they take out are adopted. So these are animals that are um, actually, you know, they go out with the uh, Suke and her group, and then people see the animals and, you know, other family members. In fact, the staff member adopted one of the dogs just based on it going out to uh, one of the residents. So um, they said they are always in need of volunteers and that their waiting list, like I said, the people that want them to bring the dogs into their places, there's a long list. So if you're interested in that, if you enjoy animals and uh, you want to take a dog out to a residence and have time to volunteer, this is a great organization. And Nadia, am I correct in remembering that you, you actually volunteer for Kansas Humane Society as well? What are some other opportunities there that people might, uh, if they're interested in animals? Um, I take photos for their website, oh. um, which is one of those things where it's not a, an immediate impact, but I hope, hope it helps them. Um, so many dog walkers, cat socializers, um, adoptions counselors, people just to greet, um, all the whole gamut, cleaning cages. It's not glamorous, but it's so needed. So lots of opportunities there. Steve, did you want to add something? I was just going to say, the reason the dog's not barking is they were training for that. <laughs> no, I guess they did it right. They're just being quiet. But yeah, I know that she says some of the dogs she will allow to go into the last of some of the residents. Some dogs not, not so much. But they do take, uh, yeah, that's a good point. But uh, yeah, you should have seen me. I was trying to, yeah, just lady faces and that well, That's what barking. <laughs> um, another story I want to make sure that we share tonight before um, before we get to a few more audience questions. Um, Nadia, you did uh, a story about Kansas being uh, like a top state for volunteerism. This was last year. Um, and again, I don't know that we have time to play the whole story, but do you want to talk about that and how that came about? This is an annual report, and I don't remember who puts it out. Um, just ranks volunteer hours by state, who responded, saying that they did some volunteering. So in 2015, I think 600-something residents in Kansas responded to say, yes, they had done some volunteer work um, the previous year. Um, and that put us at number seven, I believe. So we're in the top 10 states among volunteering, and I think it's a pretty consistent ranking that Kansas does really well. And I spoke to Volunteer Kansas, one of the co-sponsors of the event, and they said that Kansans just, it's second nature to them. Um, they won't even think twice about just trying to help out to the point where they might not even consider it volunteering. It's just what they do. So very generous state. I don't know why, but we are. That's really interesting. And actually, if uh, we're talking about all these opportunities to get involved and to, to give back, um, on volunteerkansas.org, they have like a, well, you can search different ways. You can search by like uh, subject matter for something you might be interested in. But they also have like hot opportunities, like this, this kind of scrolling list of, of, of cool opportunities that you might be interested in. So you can definitely check that out too. Um, I do want to get to a couple more audience questions before we have to wrap up tonight. 
Um, one person, again, wondering about trends here, um, and I don't know how much she can speak to this, but do you notice an increase in the need for volunteer services associated with the state of Kansas budget problems? Is that something that you can speak to at all? I think nonprofits in general kind of fill a gap. Like Deborah was saying, if Central County cuts some funding, if the city of Wichita cuts some funding, these nonprofits are the ones that really fill a lot of holes. And also some private organizations, too, um, catching those services. So I would, I would venture that volunteering also plays a role in Along those same lines, along those same lines, uh, I have heard of a couple organizations uh, in the healthcare kind of realm that are concerned about the potential for chip to not be renewed, uh, which is the what's that stand for? The children's, children's health insurance program. Yeah, children's health insurance pro programs. Yeah. So I know that as of now, they're still funding in Kansas, but that won't last forever. Um, and that's a big deal because the CHIP program helps pay for a lot of care for children. So I know that that has come up. That's fine. I was just going to say that, um, you know, if the county, city, and state governments cut back on funding for these nonprofits or for programs that provide services in the community, it comes back to the community and donations from individuals. And so uh, in order for them to survive, they need, you know, the money to carry on. And so the United Way can only fund so many projects. They have a limited budget, too. And so when the other government funding ends or is stopped for whatever reason, um, everybody still wants that help and still are asking. So the organizations that are generous and help these nonprofits survive, they get stressed because then they're asked to provide more funding. And there's only so much to go around. Um, in the end, so that's how it works. Thank you. Um, I have another audience question here, wondering if you all know of any organizations in town to help with LGBTQ youth. Um, and then they mentioned the Center of Wichita offers a Friday night group for youth. Um, is this something that any of you have encountered? An air, yeah. No, but that's a really great question. Yeah, it is. But maybe an area for some research. So we're getting ideas here, guys. I, I think there are some uh, groups at Wichita State University at a college level, uh, but I don't know for the younger youth um, in in particular. But I know at, at the university level there are some organizations that uh, provide support and help and, and mentoring for that group. Alexis, did you want to mention? Our, our engagement assistant, Alexis, do you have something to add here today? Yes, uh, just a follow-up with uh, Deborah Sharp, as she said. Get up, Sorry. Uh, the University of Wichita State, um, they have a LGBTQ and allies organization that are always looking for volunteers to, um, to put on certain events um, and certain people to come and speak and certain mentors. Um, so if you are interested, I mean, I'll be at this table here, but Certainly get online and reach out. Um, I know they have a Facebook page, Twitter, and Instagram, so feel free to reach out in any way, shape, or form. Thank you. Um, I, I do want to wrap up here, but I uh, want to get to one more audience question um, uh, saying it was great hearing about SafeNet clinics that we talked about earlier. Are you familiar with HealthCore Clinic? 
It's uh, just west of 21st and Hillside. Um, just built a massive expansion uh, to offer uh, total health care to all, regardless of ability to pay. Is that one on you guys' radar? Yes. Do you want to talk about that part? Just that uh, uh, Teresa Lovelace, she's the one that is the uh, chief uh, executive there, CEO there. Um, and I actually have been in trying to reach her to find out more about it because I knew they had expanded. I knew there was some things going on. I don't know all those details yet, but that's a story on the way. <laughs> Thanks for the reminder. Yeah, so we are trying to take care of that. That story. We've done actually stories on them before when they were Center for Health and Wellness, but they recently changed it. There are so many things to investigate, and of course, now that we have two two more reporters on staff, hopefully we can get to more of those things. Deborah, did you want to add something? Oh, you were holding the microphone like you were. I'm just holding it to talk, but I do know. I will add. I do know. Yeah, um, HealthCore is a, a site that sponsors a health navigator, and we know the enrollment for the ACA Marketplace Health Insurance is this Friday, and so they do offer health. Um, Help assist, you know, assistance with completing that application and the forms. HealthCorp is one of the sites here in Wichita that offers that. Um, I wanted to ask you all if you witness a lot of collaboration between nonprofits. I mean, there's so many, and a lot of them have really similar missions. And I guess whether or not they have similar missions, maybe they would have different reasons to collaborate. But do you all see that happen much in your experience? Well, Mayflower mentioned this one of the things I asked them. They, they do work with product access and with Guadalupe and, and other safety net clinics. It doesn't make sense not to. I know they're kind of competing for funding in a lot of instances, and it is a limited resource, but they definitely partner up and work together wherever they can. It just kind of enhances their ability to provide services. I think those health clinics in particular to complement each other because they're each a little bit different too in what they do so they complement. I think the collaboration you see is among the people and the volunteers. You see people volunteering for certain organizations in their interest and you'll see them at several different places because that's their passion. And so you see it among the volunteers um, too. Um, the last thing I want to ask tonight is um, what experience you all have had that's really stuck with you or just a rewarding experience that you've had in going out there and kind of being a witness to the things that people are doing to, to shape and improve the community. I would just like to add, right now I'm working on a piece uh, in, in regard to uh, financial literacy. There's a volunteer who goes into the schools, into one particular school, Urban Prep, and uh, on Tuesdays and Thursdays, every week she volunteers. And it's amazing what you learn when you turn the mic off. That's why I try not to do that, <laughs> truly. But um, she's sharing, uh, I just asked her, I said, now you are such a faithful volunteer. Every Tuesday and Thursday you're teaching children how to budget their money, you know, and do good things. But for her personally, um, she's not making a whole lot of money. I mean, literally, she's, I would say, you know, and I don't think I'm out of turn, out of speaking out of turn, um, that uh, she might be having a few budget problems herself. You know, it's just the truth. And she did share that gladly and candidly. So I don't, I don't I'm not saying something she didn't say out loud. Because she just spoke to say the word that they want to take. But um, not because she wanted anyone to feel sorry for her, but I'm thinking, as you mentioned about how people are serious about volunteers here, volunteering here in Kansas, it's really true. I mean, 
how, you know, the volunteer maybe not have a job yourself. You know, you may be retired and having, you know, getting a little assistance here and there or for whatever reason, however. But uh, that really stuck with me. And I mean, it still is. As I get ready to do this story, I'm thinking, oh my God, you are so faithful to all of these people. And no one knows, you know, that your own situation may be a little difficult, but you think it's that important. And she said she really wants to instill in children uh, how they can become debt free. And so that's a story, you know, that, that's another story to tell, but that's part of it. And just so grateful to the volunteers and all that people do here in this community, even here at KBW, people that answer the phones, that do all, I mean, so much more than that. But uh, it just makes me really grateful. And to be able to tell the stories is a real privilege. Thank you. Anyone else want to add something there? I would say it always strikes me how Ordinary it is for a lot of people what guy to meet when they're uh, volunteering. It's so many people that volunteer have done it for so long, and it's not like oh this brand new exciting experience. It's like they're there to work and to get the job done, and uh, it's it's not just for the kicks of this brand new thing to do. I mean, it's exciting often to get to learn more about your community, but just how uh, how many experienced people there are. To volunteer, uh, especially like you, I've seen which does start to get all yeah set so good. <laughs> Tonight's the night for that. So carry on. <laughs> Anyone else want to add something before we wrap up? Well, thank you very much. And uh, yes, a question. Friend was in the battle over her and I. And we had a guerrilla veteran service organization. A veteran service organization. Just in June. And through that experience, I came up with just my, my own philosophy in life is that life is a blessing that occurs. We have a choice of a choice we bless us with curses. You can hang on to your curses, they're really solid. Blessings that, that can get away from you, that you can focus on the blessings and make you lighter and you're, you're happier in the world. That's, that's, that's beautiful. That's, that's, that's what it's all about. Well, thank you. Thank you very much. And yes. My question is this is all perspective. Did you give um, people donating money for the uh, broadcasting uh, funding that you give to? Did we meet did we meet our goal? We're still here. <laughs> We're still here. We did in fact meet our goal. Yes. Yes, we did. We the goal was fifty-three thousand dollars and we were just a few thousand shy of it when we stopped the on-air portion of the of the fundraising. But we also had sent out letters to people, and so that money kind of rolled in over the next day and a half, um, and so we we did end up hitting it. So we we're very very pleased, and uh, we're very happy to have our new reporter. <laughs> so. What was that? Steve and I were particularly pleased. Yes, I bet you were. Well, thank you. Yes, I mean, we're talking about all these wonderful organizations, and of course, KMUW is also a nonprofit, and we could use your help all the time. Um, but there's so much that all of us can do and, uh, and such an impact that, that each individual person can make. And I think 
to me, this has been very inspiring. Thank you so much for, for talking to us and for sharing tonight. Let's have a big round of applause for our panel. So Engage ICT does continue next year, and we are going to really drill down into a few different uh, areas. We'll have kind of series on, on different uh, uh, subject areas. So we'll, we'll talk about civic health and education and uh, sustainability, some really cool topics. So stay tuned for that. We'll be back next year and we're going to keep uh, kind of exploring those topics and, uh, and, and uh, chatting about them. So thank you again for coming to Engage ICT and I hope that we'll see you again next year. Thanks and good night. Thanks for joining us for Engage ICT Democracy on Tap. Find more podcasts and videos at engageict.org. This show was hosted at Roxy's downtown in Wichita, Kansas. Our engineers are John Cyphers and Torin Anderson, and I'm the host. For KMUW, I'm Sarah Jane Crespo.